Welcome to this Uvula Audio presentation of The Time Traders by Andrea Norton. Your narrator is Adam von Bueller. Volume 5 Chapter 9 Not to be too hopeful, McNeil rubbed his arm across his hot face. So far, so good. After kicking from his path some of the branches Ross had lopped from the trees they had been felling, he went to help his companion roll another small log up to a shelter which was no longer temporary. If there had been any eyes other than the woodland hunters to spy upon them, they would have seen only the usual procedure of the beaker traders, busily constructing one of their posts. That they were being watched by the hunters, all three were certain. That there might be other spies in the forest, they had to assume for their own safety. They might prowl at night, but in the daytime all of the time agents kept within the bounds of the roles they were acting. Barter with the headmen of the hunting clan had brought those shy people into the camp of the strangers who had such wonders to exchange for tanned deer hides and better furs. The news of the traders' arrival spread quickly during the short time they had been there, so that two other clans had sent men to watch the proceedings. With the trade came news which the agents sifted and studied. Each of them had a list of questions to insert into their conversations with the tribesmen if and when that was possible. Although they did not share a common speech with the forest men, signs were informative and certain nouns could be quickly learned. In the meantime, Ash became friendly with the nearest and first of the clan groups they discovered, going hunting with the men as an excuse to penetrate the unknown section they must quarter in their search for the red base. Ross drank river water and mopped his own hot face. If the reds aren't traitors, he mused aloud, what is their cover? McNeil shrugged. A hunting tribe? Fishermen? Where would they get the women and children? The same way they get their men, recruit them in our own time, or in the way lots of tribes grew during periods of stress. Ross set down the water jug. You mean, kill off the men, take over their families? This was a cold-bloodedness he found sickening. Although he had always prided himself on his toughness, Several times during his training at the project, he had been confronted by things which shook his belief in his own strong stomach and nerve. It has been done, McNeil remarked bleakly, hundreds of times by invaders. In this setup, small family clans, widely scattered, that move would be very easy. They would have to pose as farmers, not hunters, Ross pointed out. They couldn't move a base around with them. All right, so they set up a farming village. Oh, I see what you mean. There isn't any village around here. Yet they are here, maybe underground. How right their guesses were, they learned that night, when Ash returned, a deer's haunch on his shoulder. Ross knew him well enough by now to sense his preoccupation. You found something? A new set of ghosts, Ash replied with a strange little smile. Ghosts! McNeil pounced upon that. The Reds like to play the supernatural angle, don't they? 
First the voice of Lurga, and now ghosts. What do these ghosts do? They inhabit a bit of mountainous territory southeast of here, a stretch strictly taboo for all hunters. We were following a bison track until the beast headed for the ghost country. Then Ulfa called us off in a hurry. It seems that the hunter who goes in there after his quarry never reappears. Or if he does, it's in a damaged condition, blown upon by ghosts and burned to death. That's one point. He sat down by the fire and stretched his arms wearily. The second is a little more disturbing for us. A beaker camp about twenty miles south of here, as far as I can judge, was exterminated just a week ago. The message was passed to me because I was thought to be a kinsman of the slain. McNeil sat up. Done because they were hunting us? Might well be. On the other hand, the affair may have been just one of general precaution. The ghosts did it? Ross wanted to know. I asked that. No, it seems that strange tribesmen overran it at night. At night? McNeil whistled. Just so. Ash's tone was dry. The tribes do not fight that way. Either someone slipped up in his briefing, or the Reds are overconfident and don't care about the rules. But it was the work of tribesmen, or their counterfeits. There is also a nasty rumor speeding about that the ghosts do not relish traitors, and that they might protest intrusions of such with penalties all around. Like the wrath of Lurga, supplied Ross. There is a certain repetition in this which suggests a lot to the suspicious mind, Ash agreed. I'd say no more hunting expeditions for the present, McNeil said. It is too easy to mistake a friend for a deer and weep over his grave afterward. That is a thought which entered my mind several times this afternoon, Ash agreed. These people are deceptively simple on the surface, but their minds do not work along the same patterns as ours. We try to outwit them, but it only takes one slip to make it fatal. In the meantime, I think we'd better make this place a little more snug, and it might be well to post sentries as unobtrusively as possible. How about faking some signs of a ruined camp and heading into the blue ourselves? McNeil asked. We could strike for the ghost mountains, traveling by night, and Ulfa's crowd would think we were finished off. An idea to keep in mind. The point against it would be the missing bodies. It seems that the tribesmen who raided the beaker camp left some very distasteful evidence of what happened to the camp's personnel, and those we can't produce to cover our trail. McNeil was not yet convinced. We might be able to fake something along that line, too. We may have to fake nothing, Ross cut in softly. He was standing close to the edge of the clearing where they were building their hut, his hand on one of the saplings in the palisade they had set up so laboriously that day. Ash was beside him in an instant. What is it? Ross's hours of listening to the sounds of the wilderness were his measuring gauge now. That bird has never called from inland before. 
It is the blue one we've seen fishing for frogs along the river. Ash, not even glancing at the forest, went for the water jug. Get your trail supplies, he ordered. Their leather pouches, which held enough iron rations to keep them going, were always at hand. McNeil gathered them from behind the fur curtain fronting their half-finished cabin. Again the bird called, its cry piercing and covering a long distance. Ross could understand why a careless man would select it for the signal. He crossed the clearing to the donkey's shelter, slashing through their nose halters. Probably the patient little beasts would swiftly fall victims to some forest prowlers, but at least they would have their chance to escape. McNeil, his cloak slung about him to conceal the ration bags, picked up the leather bucket as if he were merely going down to the river for water and came to join Ross. They believed that they were carrying it off well, that the camp must appear normal to any lurkers in the woods. But either they had made some slip or the enemy was impatient. An arrow sped out of the night to flash across the fire, and Ash escaped death only because he had leaned forward to feed the flames. His arms swung out and sent the water in the jar hissing onto the blaze as he himself rolled in the other direction. Ross plunged for the brush with McNeil. Lying flat on the half-frozen ground, they started to work their way to the riverbank, where the open area would make surprise less possible. Ash, he whispered, and felt McNeil's warm breath on his cheek as he replied, He'll make it the other way. He's the best we have for this sort of job. They made a worm's progress, twice lying, with dagger in hand, while they listened to a faint rustle, which betrayed the passing of one of the attackers. Both times Ross was tempted to rise and try to cut off the stranger, but he fought down the impulse. He had learned a control of himself that would have been impossible for him a few months earlier. The glimmer of the river was pale through the clumps of bushes which sometimes grew into the flood. In this country, winter still clung tenaciously in shadowy places with cups of leftover snow, and there was a bite in the wind and water. Ross rose to his knees with an involuntary gasp as a scream cut through the night. He wrenched around toward the camp, only to feel McNeil's hand clamp on his forearm. That was a donkey, whispered McNeil urgently. Come on, let's go down to that ford we discovered. They turned south, daring now to trot, half-bent to the ground. The river was swollen with spring floods, which were only now beginning to subside. But two days earlier they had noticed a sandbar at one spot. By crossing that shelf across the bed, they might hope to put water between them and the unknown enemy tonight. It would give them a breathing space, even though Ross privately shrank from the thought of plowing into the stream. He had seen good-sized trees swirling along in the current only yesterday, and to make such a dash in the dark. From McNeil's throat burst a startling sound, which Ross had last heard in Britain, the questing howl of a hunting wolf. The cry was answered seconds later from downstream. Ash! They worked their way along the edge of the water with continued care, until they came upon Ash at last, so much a part of his background that Ross started when the lump he had taken for a bush hunched forward to join them. 
Together they made the river crossing and turned south again to head for the mountains. It was then that disaster struck. Ross heard no bird call warning this time. Though he was on guard, he never sensed the approach of the man who struck him down from behind. One moment he had been trailing McNeil and Ash. The next moment was black nothingness. He was aware of a throb of pain which carried throughout his body and then localized in his head. Forcing open his eyes, the dazzle of light was like a spear point striking directly into his head, intensifying his pain to agony. He brought his hand up to his face and felt stickiness there. Asha! He believed he called that aloud, but he did not even hear his own voice. They were in a valley. A wolf had attacked him out of the bushes. Wolf? No, the wolf was dead. But then it came alive again to howl on a riverbank. Ross forced his eyes open once more, enduring the pain of beams he recognized as sunshine. He turned his head to avoid the glare. It was hard to focus, but he fought to steady himself. There was some reason why it was necessary to move, to get away. But away from what and where? When Ross tried to think, he could only see muddled pictures which had no connection. Then a moving object crossed his very narrow field of vision, passing between him and a thing he knew was a tree trunk, a four-footed creature with a red tongue hanging from its jaws. It came toward him stiff-legged, growling low in its throat, and sniffed at his body before barking in short, excited bursts of sound. The noise hurt his head so much that Ross closed his eyes. Then a shock of icy liquid thrown into his face aroused him to make a feeble protest, and he saw, hanging over him in a strange, upside-down way, a bearded face which he knew from the past. Hands were laid on him, and the roughness with which he was moved sent Ross spiraling back into the dark once again. When he aroused for the second time, it was night, and the pain in his head was dulled. He put out his hands and discovered that he lay on a pile of fur robes and was covered by one. Asha! Again he tried that name. But it was not Asha who came in answer to his feeble call. The woman who knelt beside him with a horn cup in her hand had neatly braided hair in which gray strands showed silver by firelight. Ross knew he had seen her before, but again where and when eluded him. She slipped a sturdy arm under his head and raised him while the world whirled about. The edge of the horn cup was pressed to his lips, and he drank bitter stuff, which burned in his throat and lit a fire in his insides. Then he was left to himself once again, and in spite of his pain and bewilderment, he slept. How many days he lay in the camp of Ulfa, tended by the chief's headwife, Ross found it hard to reckon. It was Frigga who had argued the tribe into caring for a man they believed almost dead when they found him, and who nursed Ross back to life with knowledge acquired through half a hundred exchanges between those wise women who were the doctors and priestesses of these roaming peoples. Why Frigga had bothered with the injured stranger at all, Ross learned when he was able to sit up and marshal his bewildered thoughts into some sort of order. The matriarch of the tribe thirsted for knowledge. That same urge which had led her to certain experiments with herbs had made her consider Ross a challenge to her healing skill.
When she knew that he would live, she determined to learn from him all he had to give. Ulfa and the men of the tribe might have eyed the metal weapons of the traders with awe and avid desire, but Frigga wanted more than trade goods. She wanted the secret of the making of such cloth as the strangers wore, everything she could learn of their lives and the lands through which they had come. She plied Ross with endless questions, which he answered as best he could, for he lay in an odd, dreamy state where only the present had any reality. The past was dim and far away, and while he was now and then dimly aware that he had something to do, he forgot it easily. The chief and his men prowled the half-built station after the attackers had withdrawn, bringing back with them a handful of loot, a bronze razor, two skinning knives, some fish hooks, a length of cloth which Frigga appropriated. Ross eyed this spoil indifferently, making no claim upon it. His interest in everything about him was often blanked out by headaches, which kept him limp on his bed, uncaring and stupid for hours or even full days. He gathered that the tribe had been living in fear of an attack from the same raiders who had wiped out the trading post. But at last their scouts returned with the information that the enemy had gone south. There was one change of which Ross was not aware, but which might have startled both Ash and McNeil. Ross Murdoch had indeed died under that blow which had left him unconscious beside the river. The young man whom Frigga had drawn back to sense and a slow recovery was Rossa of the Beaker people. This same Rossa nursed a hot desire for vengeance against those who had struck him down and captured his kinsmen, a feeling which the family tribe who had rescued him could well understand. There was the same old urgency pushing him to try his strength now, to keep to his feet even when they were unsteady. His bow was gone, but Ross spent hours fashioning another, and he traded his copper bracelet for the best dozen arrows in Ulfa's camp. The jet pin from his cloak he presented to Frigga with all his gratitude. Now that his strength was coming back, he could not rest easy in the camp. He was ready to leave, even though the gashes on his head were still tender to the touch. Ulfa indulgently planned a hunt southward, and Rossa took the trail with the tribesmen. He broke with the clan hunters when they turned aside at the beginning of the taboo land. Ross, his own mind submerged and taken over by his beaker cover, hesitated too. Yet he could not give up, and the others left him there, his eyes on the forbidden heights, unhappy and tormented by more than the headaches which still came and went with painful regularity. In the mountains lay what he sought. A hidden something within his brain told him that over and over. But the mountains were taboo, and he should not venture into them. How long he might have hesitated there if he had not come upon the trail, Ross did not know. But on the day after the hunters of Ulfa's clan left, a glint of sunlight striking between two trees pointed out a woodsman's blaze on a third tree trunk. The two halves of Ross's memory clicked together for an instant as he examined that cut. He knew that it marked a trace, and he pushed on, hunting a second cut, and then a third. Convinced that these would lead him into the unknown territory, Ross's desire to explore overcame the grafted superstitions of his briefing. There were other signs that this was an often-traveled route, 
a spring cleared of leaves and walled with stone, a couple of steps cut in the turf on a steep slope. Ross moved warily, alert to any sound. He might not be an expert woodsman, but he was learning fast, perhaps the faster because his false memories now supplanted the real ones. That night he built no fire, crawling instead into the heart of a rotted log to sleep, awakening once to the call of a wolf and another time at the distant crash of a dead tree yielding to wind. In the morning he was about to climb back to the trail he had prudently left the night before when he saw five bearded, fur-clad men looking much the same as Ulfa's people. Ross hugged the earth and watched them pass out of sight before he followed. All that day he wove an up-and-down trail behind the small band, sometimes catching sight of them as they topped a rise well ahead or stopped to eat. It was late afternoon when he crept cautiously to the top of a ridge and gazed down into a valley. There was a town in that valley, sturdy houses of logs behind a stockade. He had seen towns vaguely like it before, yet it had a dreamlike quality as if it were not as real as it appeared. Ross rested his chin on his arms and watched that town and the people moving in it. Some were fur-clad hunters, but others dressed quite differently. He started up with a little cry at the sight of one of the men who had walked so swiftly from one house to the next. Surely he was a beaker trader. His unease grew stronger with every moment he watched, but it was the oddness he sensed in that town which bothered him, and not any warning that he himself was in danger. He had gotten to his knees to see better, when out of nowhere a rope sang through the air, settling about his chest with a vicious jerk, which not only drove the air from his lungs, but pinioned his arms tight to his body. Chapter 10 Having been cuffed and battered into submission more quickly than would have been possible three weeks earlier, Murdoch now stood sullenly surveying the man who, though he dressed like a beaker trader, persisted in using a language Ross did not know. We do not play as children here. At last the man spoke words Ross could understand. You will answer me, or else others shall ask the questions, and less gently. I say to you now, who are you and from where do you come? For a moment Ross glowered across the table at him, his inbred antagonism to authority aroused by that contemptuous demand, but then common sense cautioned. His initial introduction to this village had left him bruised and with one of his headaches. There was no reason to let them beat him until he was in no shape to make a break for freedom, when and if there was an opportunity. "'I am Rasa of the traders,' he returned, eyeing the man with a carefully measured stare. "'I came into this land in search of my kinsmen who were taken by raiders in the night.' The man, who sat on a stool by the table, smiled slowly. Again he spoke in the strange tongue, and Ross merely stared stolidly back. His words were short and explosive-sounding, and the man's smile faded. His annoyance grew as he continued to speak. One of Ross's two guards ventured to interrupt, using the beaker language. From where did you come? He was a quiet-faced, slender man, not like his companion, who had roped Murdoch from behind and was of the bully breed, 
able to subdue Ross's wildcat resistance in a very short struggle. I came to this land from the south, Ross answered, after the manner of my people. This is a new land with furs and the golden tears of the sun to be gathered and bartered. The traders move in peace, and their hands are raised against no man. Yet in the darkness there came those who would slay without profit. For what reason I have no knowing. The quiet man continued the questioning, and Ross answered fully with details of the past of one Rossa, a beaker merchant. Yes, he was from the south. His father was Gurdy, who had a trading post in the warm lands along the big river. This was Rossa's first trip to open new territory. He had come with his father's blood brother, Asha, who was a noted far voyager, and it was an honor to be chosen as donkey leader for such a one as Asha. With Asha had been Makna, one who was also a far trader, though not as noted as Asha. Of a certainty, Asha was of his own race. Ross blinked at that question. One need only to look upon him to know that he was of trader blood and no uncivilized woods runner. How long had he known Asha? Ross shrugged. Asha had come to his father's post the winter before and had stayed with them through the cold season. Gurdy and Asha had mingled blood after he pulled Gurdy free from the river in flood. Asha had lost his boat and trade goods in that rescue, so Gurdy had made good his loss this year. Detail by detail he gave the story. In spite of the fact that he provided these details glibly, sure that they were true, Ross continued to be haunted by an odd feeling that he was indeed reciting a tale of adventure which had happened long ago and to someone else. Perhaps that pain in his head made him think of these events as very colorless and far away. It would seem, the quiet man turned to the one behind the table, that this is indeed one Rossa, a beaker trader. But the man looked impatient, angry. He made a sign to the other guard, who turned Ross around roughly and sent him toward the door with a shove. Once again the leader gave an order in his own language, adding a few words more with a stinging snap that might have been a threat or a warning. Ross was thrust into a small room, with a hard floor and not even a skin rug to serve as a bed. Since the quiet man had ordered the removal of the ropes from Ross's arms, he leaned against the wall rubbing the pain of returning circulation away from his wrists and trying to understand what had happened to him and where he was. Having spied upon it from the heights, he knew it wasn't an ordinary trading station, and he wanted to know what they did here. Also, somewhere in this village, he hoped to find Asha and Makna. At the end of the day, his captors opened the door only long enough to push inside a bowl and a small jug. He felt for those in the dusk, dipping his fingers into a lukewarm mush of meal and drinking the water from the jug avidly. His headache dulled, and from experience Ross knew that this bout was almost over. If he slept, he would waken with a clearer mind and no pain. Knowing he was very tired, he took the precaution of curling up directly in front of the door so that no one could enter without arousing him. It was still dark when he awoke, with a curious urgency remaining from a dream he could not remember. Ross sat up, flexing his arms and shoulders to combat the stiffness which had come with his cramped sleep. He could not rid himself of a feeling that there was something to be done, and that time was his enemy. 
Asha. Gratefully, he seized on that. He must find Asha and Makna, for the three of them could surely discover a way to get out of this village. That was what was so important. He had been handled none too gently, and they were holding him a prisoner. But Ross believed that this was not the worst which could happen to him here, and he must be free before the worst did come. The question was, how could he escape? His bow and dagger were gone, and he did not even have his long cloak pin for a weapon, since he had given that to Frigga. Running his hands over his body, Ross inventoried what remained of his clothing and possessions. He unfastened the bronze chain belt still buckled in his kilt tunic, swinging the length speculatively in one hand. A masterpiece of craftsmanship, it consisted of patterned plates linked together with a series of five finely wrought chains and a front buckle in the form of a lion's head, its protruding tongue serving as a hook to support a dagger sheath. Its weight promised a weapon of sorts, which, when added to the element of surprise, might free him. By rights, they would be expecting him to produce some opposition, however. It was well known that only the best fighters, the shrewdest minds, followed the traders' roads. It was a proud thing to be a trader in the wilderness, a thought that warmed Ross now as he waited in the dark for what luck and babal of the bright horns would send. Were he ever to return to Gertie's post, Babal, whose boat rode across the sky from dawn to dusk, would have a fine ox, jars of the first brewing, and sweet-smelling amber laid upon his altar. Ross had patience which he had learned from the mixed heritage of his two pasts, the real and the false graft. He could wait as he had waited many times before, quiet and without word ease, for the right moment to come. It came now with footsteps ringing sharply, halting before his cell door. With the noiseless speed of a hunting cat, Ross flung himself from behind the door to a wall, where he would be hidden from the newcomer for that necessary instant or two. If his attack was to be successful, it must occur inside the room. He heard the sound of a bar being slid out of its brackets, and he poised himself, the belt rippling from his right hand. The door was opening inward, and a man stood silhouetted against the outer light. He muttered, looking toward the corner where Ross had thrown his single garment in a roll which might just resemble, for the needed second or two, a man curled in slumber. The man in the doorway took the bait, coming forward far enough for Ross to send the door slamming shut as he himself sprang with the belt aimed for the other's head. There was a startled cry, cut off in the middle as the belt plates met flesh and bone in a crushing force. Luck was with him. Ross caught up his kilt and belted it around him after he had made a hurried examination of the body now lying at his feet. He was not sure that the man was dead, but at any rate he was completely unconscious. Ross stripped off the man's cloak, located his dagger, freed it from the belt hook, and snapped it on his own. Then, Inch by inch, Ross edged open the door, peering through the crack. As far as he could see, the hall was empty, so he jerked the portal open, and dagger in hand, sprang out, ready for attack. He closed the door, slipping the bar back into its brackets. If the man inside revived and pounded for attention, his own friends might think it was Ross, and delay investigating. But the escape from the cell was the easiest part of what he planned to do, as Ross well knew.
To find Asha and Makna in this maze of rooms occupied by the enemy was far more difficult. Although he had no idea in which of the village buildings they might be confined, this one was the largest and seemed to be the headquarters of the chief men, which meant it could also serve as their prison. Light came from a torch in a bracket halfway down the hall. The wood burned smokily, giving off a resinous odor, and to Ross the glow was sufficient illumination. He slipped along as close to the wall as he could, ready to freeze at the slightest sound. But this portion of the building might well have been deserted, for he saw or heard no one. He tried the only two doors opening out of the hall, but they were secured on the other side. Then he came to a bend in the corridor and stopped short, hearing a murmur of low voices. If he had used a hunter's tricks of silent tread and vigilant weariness before, Ross was doubly on guard now, as he wriggled to a point from which he could see beyond that turn. Mere luck prevented him from giving himself away a moment later. Asha! Asha, alive, well, apparently under no restraint, was just turning away from the same quiet man who had had a part in Ross's interrogation. That was surely Asha's brown hair, his slender, wiry body draped with a beaker's kilt. A familiar tilt of the head convinced Ross, though he could not see the man's face. The quiet man went down the hall, leaving Asha before a door. As he passed through it, Ross sped forward and followed him inside. Asha had crossed the bare room and was standing on a glowing plate in the floor. Ross, aroused to desperate action by some fear he did not understand, leaped after him. His left hand fell upon Asha's shoulder, turning the man half around as Ross, too, stepped upon the patch of luminescence. Murdoch had only an instant to realize that he was staring into the face of an astonished stranger. His hand flashed up in an edgewise blow, which caught the other on the side of the throat, and then the world came apart about them. There was a churning, whirling sickness, which gripped and bent Ross almost double across the crumpled body of his victim. He held his head lest it be torn from his shoulders by the spinning thing which seemed based behind his eyes. The sickness endured only for a moment, and some buried part of Ross's mind accepted it as a phenomenon he had experienced before. He came out of it gasping, to focus his attention once more on the man at his feet. The stranger was still breathing. Ross stooped to drag him from the plate and began binding and gagging him with lengths torn from his kilt. Only when his captive was secure did he begin looking about him curiously. The room was bare of any furnishings, and now, as he glanced at the floor, Ross saw that the plate had lost its glow. The beaker trader, Rossa, rubbed sweating palms on his kilt and thought fleetingly of forest ghosts and other mysteries. Not that the traders bowed to those ghosts, which were the plague of lesser men and tribes, but anything which suddenly appeared and then disappeared without any logical explanation needed thinking on. Murdoch pulled the prisoner, who was now reviving, to the far end of the room, and then went back to the plate with the persistence of a man who refused to treat with ghosts and wanted something concrete to explain the unexplainable. Though he rubbed his hands across the smooth surface of the plate, it did not light up again. His captive having writhed himself half out of the corner of the room, Ross debated the wisdom of another silencing. 
Saya tap on the skull with the heavy hilt of his dagger. Deciding against it because he might need a guide, he freed the victim's ankle bonds and pulled him to his feet, holding the dagger ready where the man could see it. Were there any more surprises to be encountered in this place, Asha's double would test them first. The door did not lead to the same corridor, or even the same kind of corridor Ross had passed through moments earlier. Instead, they entered a short passage with walls of some smooth stuff, which had almost the sheen of polished metal and were sleek and cold to the touch. In fact, the whole place was chill, chill as river water in the spring. Still herding the prisoner before him, Ross came to the nearest door and looked within, to be faced by incomprehensible frames of metal rods and boxes. Rasa of the traders marveled and stared, but again he realized that what he saw was not altogether strange. Part of one wall was a board on which small lights flashed and died, to flash again in winks of bright color. A mysterious object made of wire and discs hung across the back of a chair standing nearby. The bound man lurched for the chair and fell, rolling toward the wall. Ross pushed him on until he was hidden behind one of the metal boxes. Then he made the rounds of the room, touching nothing but studying what he could not understand. Puffs of warm air came in through grills near the floor, but the room had the same general chill as the hall outside. Meanwhile, the lights on the board had become more active, flashing on and off in complex patterns. Ross now heard a buzzing, as if a swarm of angry insects were gathered for an attack. Crouching beside his captive, Ross watched the lights, trying to discover the source of the sound. The buzz grew shriller, almost demanding. Ross heard the tramp of heavy footgear in the corridor, and a man entered the room, crossing purposefully to the chair. He sat down and drew the wire and disc frame over his head. His hands moved under the lights, but Ross could not guess what he was doing. The captive at Murdoch's side tried to stir, but Ross's hand pinned him quiet. The shrill noise which had originally summoned the man at the lights was interrupted by a sharp pattern of long and short sounds, and his hands flew even more quickly, while Ross took in every detail of the other's clothing and equipment. He was neither a shaggy tribesman nor a trader. He wore a dull green outer garment cut in one piece to cover his arms and legs, as well as his body, and his hair was so short that his round skull might have been shaven. Ross rubbed the back of his wrist across his eyes, experiencing again that dim other memory. Odd as this man looked, Murdoch had seen his like before somewhere, yet the background had not been Gertie's post on the southern river. Where and when had he, Rasa, ever been with such strange beings? And why could he not remember it all more clearly? Boots sounded once more in the hall, and another figure strode in. This one wore furs, but he too was no woods hunter, Ross realized as he studied the newcomer in detail. The loose overshirt of thick fur with its hood thrown back, the high boots, and all the rest were not of any primitive fashioning. And the man had four eyes. One pair were placed normally on either side of his nose, and the other two, black-rimmed and murky, were set above on his forehead. The fur-clad man tapped the one seated at the board. He freed his head partially from the wire cage so that they could talk together in a strange language, 
while lights continued to flash and the buzzing died away. Ross's captive wriggled with renewed vigor and at last thrashed free a foot to kick at one of the metal installations. The resulting clang brought both men around. The one at the board tore his headcage off as he jumped to his feet, while the other brought out a gun. Gun? One little fraction of Ross's mind wondered at his recognition of that black thing and of the danger it promised, even as he prepared for battle. He pushed his captive across the path of the man in fur and threw himself in the other direction. There was a blast to make a torment in his head as he hurled toward the door. So intent was Ross upon escape that he did not glance behind, but skidded out on his hands and knees, thus fortunately presenting a poor target to the third man coming down the hall. Ross's shoulder hit the newcomer at thigh level, and they tangled in a struggling mass which saved Ross's life as the others burst out behind them. Ross fought grimly, his hands and feet moving in blows he was not conscious of planning. His opponent was no easy match, and at last Ross was flattened in spite of his desperate efforts. He was whirled over, his arms jerked behind him, and cold metal rings snapped about his wrists. Then he was rolled back to lie blinking up at his enemies. All three men gathered over him, barking questions which he could not understand. One of them disappeared and returned with Ross's former captive, his mouth a straight line and a light in his eyes Ross understood far better than words. "'You are the traitor, prisoner!' The man who looked like Asha leaned over Murdoch, patches of red on his tanned skin where the gag and wrist bonds had been. "'I am Rasa, son of Gurdy, of the traitors,' Ross returned, meeting what he read in the other's expression with a ready defiance. "'I was a prisoner, yes, but you did not keep me one for long then, nor shall you now.' The man's thin upper lip lifted. "'You have done yourself ill, my young friend. We have a better prison here for you, one from which you shall not escape.' He spoke to the other men, and there was the ring of an order in his voice. They pulled Ross to his feet, pushing him ahead of them. During the short march, Ross used his eyes, noticing things he could not identify in the rooms through which they passed. Men called questions, and at last they paused long enough, Ross firmly in the hold of the fur-clad guard, for the other two to put on similar garments. Ross had lost his cloak in the fight, but no fur shirt was given him. He shivered more and more as the chill which clung to that warren of rooms and halls bit into his half-clad body. He was certain of only one thing about this place. He could not possibly be in the crude buildings of the valley village. However, he was unable to guess where he was and how he had come there. Finally, they went down a narrow room filled with bulky metal objects of bright scarlet or violet that gleamed weirdly and were equipped with rods along which all the colors of the rainbow ringed. Here was a round door, and when one of the guards used both hands to tug it open, the cold that swept in at them was a frigid breath that burned as it touched bare skin.